I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. For each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at consminds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 14, we read Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville from 1840. Alexis de Tocqueville was born in Normandy, France in 1805. He belonged to an aristocratic family that traced its origins to the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Most of his family died during the reign of terror of the French Revolution, though his parents narrowly survived. After studies in Metz in Paris, Tocqueville started working as a magistrate, but he quickly grew bored by legal work. In 1831, King Louis-Philippe commissioned Tocqueville and his friend Gustave de Beaumont to study prison conditions in the United States. The two traveled to America over nine months in 1831 and 1832. Tocqueville drew on this experience in the United States to produce his two-volume masterpiece, Democracy in America. In the words of Harvard political scientist Harvey Mansfield, Democracy in America is the best book ever written on democracy and the best book ever written on America. Tocqueville characterizes the social, political, religious, and intellectual habits of the Americans with such deep understanding that nearly two centuries later is still foundational reading for the study of politics and sociology. As another source put it, democracy in America remains widely read and even more widely quoted by politicians philosophers, historians, and anyone seeking to understand the American character. Later in his career, Tocqueville would also travel to England, Ireland, and Algeria, writing noteworthy accounts of these voyages as well. Tocqueville served as deputy to Louis-Philippe during the July Monarchy in France. After the fall of the July Monarchy, during the February 1848 Revolution, Tocqueville was elected a member of the Constituent Assembly, where he became a member of the commission charged with the drafting of the new constitution of the Second Republic. Later, he briefly served as Louis Napoleon's foreign minister before being forced out of politics when he refused to support Napoleon's coup in 1851. Afterward, Tocqueville retired to his family estate in Normandy and began writing a history of modern France. The first volume was published as The Old Regime and the French Revolution in 1856. He blamed the French Revolution on corruption among the nobility and on the political disillusionment of the French population. Tocqueville's plans for later volumes were cut short by his death from tuberculosis in 1859. As you said in the introduction, Tocqueville seems to be quoted throughout many of the works that we've come across and many others as well. And you hear politicians today still talk about him. You see, it, he comes up everywhere. And after reading this, I think we can see why he really is a, just a keen observer of the American scene in a way that sometimes only an outsider can be coming over from, and also just comparing revolutionary France to revolutionary America and uh, contrasting, you know, what went wrong there, what went right here. It really, uh, I think it gives some important insights and that's kind of where he begins is talking about how people and societies are shaped by where they began and how they began and how English politics and English society shaped the United States even before we were the United States. You know, beginning without an aristocracy, for example, 
you know, we never really had that sort of landed class, that titled class in America that other places in Europe that later became democratic had to, had to deal with that when, when they were having their revolutions, you know, what, what do you do with these guys who are dukes and, and princes and things? We, we didn't, we didn't have that. So it's sort of from the beginning, we started out with a better chance for equality. Yeah. And he gives us some reasons, you know, in Europe, they had just generations and generations and generations of passing land from, you know, one family member to the next. In America, there was just so much land. You could just pick up and move, move west and west and west. You know, he makes the point that you needed a, he says a persistent and committed effort of the owner was required to clear the land. So an aristocracy has a hard time taking root or flourishing without the land. Wealth, he says, is just not enough. What he found really profound is that in all of these English colonies that he visited, each of the colonies promoted middle-class democratic liberty, which he's something he had never seen in Europe. He says it's the first time in world history that even from the top to the bottom in class of society, everyone promoted democratic liberty. Partly, he says, this is really due to particularly in new england he was he's, he was very enamored with what he found in new england and the puritan heritage he says puritanism was not only a religious doctrine it linked itself in several respects to the most prominent democratic and republican theories and he, he, he calls puritanism was almost as much a political theory as a religious theory and we know that you know sort of the, the origins of, a, of the new world is the story of religious groups fleeing Europe to come practice their religion here in America and obviously Puritans in, in New England. He, sa- he, sa- he says their overriding concern f- for government was to preserve the moral order in society. And so they, s- they would set up their communities based around, you know, kind of what George Will wanted, mm-hmm. you know, f- a focus on the development of moral character for the citizens. And, you know, that there was a heavy focus on that. It's, it's really fascinating to think that, you know, in other books, maybe we'll get to later, they talk more in depth about the Puritan ethic and work ethic. But, you know, these are religious refugees who come to America and build a society based on basically like these democratic principles with a focus on preserving the moral order. That's going to create a completely different society than thousands of years of nobles and serfs. And it's interesting he focuses on, on New England as our ideological founding, because I think we do that still today. We think about the, the pilgrims in Plymouth Rock, but they weren't the first ones here. I mean, there, there were English colonists at Jamestown, Virginia for 15 or 20 years by the time the pilgrims got here. But uh, Tocqueville draws a distinction to the people who came over to that colony and a few others that were getting started were not really looking to start a new thing. They were just, it was more like a financial investment. Good in this land, you know, trade for furs, tobacco, send it back to England. It was like setting up a franchise of the old country. There wasn't really anything new about it. And there wasn't really anything that united those people, except that they were looking to better themselves financially, which is, you know, a fine prospect. The New England settlers weren't against that idea either, but they, he talks about, they came here for an idea in New England. Of all the colonies of all the European countries, I think that's unique. Everybody else was mostly, you know, they were looking to trade. They were looking to get better off in society, but it was the old society. They weren't looking to start anything new. So I think that that New England, even though it was only just one section of what became the United States, that New England idea really impressed 
Tocqueville. And I think it still impresses us today. These people are here for freedom. These people are here for liberty and an, and an, an idea in the same way that America is founded on an idea, not really, uh, you know, blood and soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says the other colonies had been founded by adventurers without family. And you're going to come make money and send it back. And, but the settlers in new England, he said, mostly belong to comfortably off classes in England. I mean, they, they were coming to practice religion and so forth. And so it wasn't just the castaways. It was people who had high standing in society. And this really stood out to me. He says, relatively speaking, there was a greater number of intelligent men than in any present day European nation. <laughs> and this, this is a fact that's always stood out to me about the American founding is with relatively small population, it's pretty incredible the number of just genius level operators that that started in you know the the American founding so, so such a concentration of really intelligent people who had this idea that they they wanted to pursue and of course there were battle you know there there was in, intellectual f- fighting and and hashing it out but pretty amazing that you know you had this such a concentration of intelligent people with political power who all sort of have the same ideal, generally speaking, that they, you know, were trying to forge. And it's interesting that Tocqueville just picks right up on that and says, wow, <laughs> that's that's really different. And in other points in our reading, he talks about how much more informed and generally more intelligent Americans are just in general than people in Europe. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but it is it is interesting to think that, you know, it was noticeable to him how active people were in you know, participatory government and how informed and they wanted to talk politics, you know, even in the, the 1830s. And of course that still, you know, characterizes us today. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's tied to the fact that we had to govern ourselves in the same, in a way that Europeans didn't at that point. And I guess by 1840, there's, you know, Britain has a parliament that actually means something France does too, but for the most part, Europeans did not have to be informed. And it probably didn't do you any good to be informed if you were not one of the aristocracy. Because all, all you do is get mad because he he can't change anything, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas here, the kind of people who want to be informed would come here, and the people who want to run their own lives would come here. And I think that 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 hard work principle that he started out when talking with aristocracy that's kind of like what Locke was talking about about how we take how something co- goes from the commons to being private property. You know, people were doing that here and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they'd get a land grant, but it wasn't usable land until they cleared it, you know, plowed the soil, planted crops. And then, you know, after a few years, they might start to have something where they could get a little savings, get a little relaxation, maybe build something nice on it, you know, mm-hmm. and that it also ties into part of his focus on New England because he, he talks about how the South with where all that kind of work was being done by slaves, it sort of takes the the idea of labor as virtue and and twists it and sort of dishonors labor and separates from the northern system, you know, where a person would achieve his wealth through real effort. And then even if he got to the point in his life where he wasn't the one, you know, cutting those trees and pulling those stumps, mm-hmm. he at least could appreciate, well, this is how I got here. And the, maybe the guys working for me are going to get there someday too. Right. Whereas in the South, you got this sort of, oh, that kind of work. That's not for, that's not for free men to do. That's, you know, that's, that's trashy. We don't do that. You know, and it, 
it it it's sort of um I think I think in Tocqueville's view, it sort of stymied that civilization down there, and, and separating it from northern civilization, and sort of uh, petrified it in its advance. Whereas New England just kept building, and then later, by his time, it was starting to industrialize even and really get going as a, a wealth generating society. He clearly is very impressed with with the, the northern American society and sees that as a model. And obviously, he's all he's also writing democracy in America as a way to kind of inform the French as they uh, reorient their society as well. So pointing to what's good and what's not as good. Obviously he sees more good in New England and uh, rather than in the South, which he's a little bit more critical of. I, I also was really taken by his description of federalism and participatory government. He says, the American founders gave each of the territory its own political life to multiply without limit, without limiting the opportunities for citizens to act in concert and mutual dependence. In America, the township preceded the county, the county preceded the state, the state preceded the union. And he really contrasts that with Europe, where basically in Europe there's this very top-down system powers passed from the upper echelons to the lower levels of society where in america it's bottom up and particularly you know at the early american founding when the union was still kind of a novel idea and really hadn't necessarily taken full root and political power was really exercised much more at the state and local level he really notices that and he sees the virtue in it in that it keeps people constantly in contact with each other. It forces them to work together. It forces them to to reckon with one another. When control of the affairs of a district is placed in the hands of the people who live there, they remain in constant contact and learn and adapt to one another. And, you know, it's basically saying, too, that when government operates on that lower level, then it, it must be much more responsive and available to the citizens. And this is a point that you and I have read in just about every book on conservatism is when you concentrate power in a centralized location, particularly when it's thousands of miles away, there's just a, a huge disconnect, creates a disillusionment. And Tocqueville's just pointing out like, hey, look, it's pretty amazing that these guys, they, you know, it's not even pointing to nobles, let alone a president. These guys, they're down on the lower level and they have to deal with each other every single day. And that creates a really incredible dynamic for the community and forces people to trust one another and work together. And of course, I, I couldn't agree more with this. And it's, it's obviously something that we've hit in multiple books. And I think is a core tenet of conservatism is the idea of, you know, federalism, disaggregate political power, decentralize it, bring it to the lowest, com uh, lowest levels of, of political society and, and you'll have better results and you'll have better community and create tighter knit communities that, you know, that Nisbet wants, for example. Yeah. The way he talked about it is striking to me too. I mean, yeah, like you said, we've talked about federalism and subsidiarity throughout this podcast, but just the way he notes that we began in a way that it's inevitable that federalism would develop here because we did start out as scattered communities that came together in ever increasingly large units until we got to be one big country. But that's, that's a real, it's like what they would call grassroots today. It's it really is sort of a, a people's movement um, in a way that you see less of it today in America, but it's still there. 
like you said, you really don't see it anywhere else. I mean, you know, you look at England, you know, William the Conqueror conquered it and then he gave out power to various barons who, you know, gave out power to sheriffs and down, down the line. It's all coming from the top. And that's, I think, more typical of how countries are formed across the world. So, I mean, this thing that we came together voluntarily, I mean, you hear a lot of people on the left say government's just a word for things we do together. And that's usually not true. But I think in, in this instance in America, it was something we decided to do together. Mm-hmm. People saw that, you know, we've got this town and this town and this town, and maybe we should, you know, have some sort of greater colonial government over us and apply to the king for a charter. And then, you know, after independence, we said, well, let's get these states together. We have a lot in common. We all believe in these principles. Let's get together. So it's something we did together voluntarily, unlike most of government, especially that top-down government where it's it's something we do together, but it's you don't really have a choice in it. So that that choice in America, and maybe it's because of our absence of aristocracy and, and you know of a, of a noble class left middle class people to say, well, somebody has to run this thing. Maybe we should all do mm-hmm. it. It, it's it's impressive, and you know, the way Tocqueville talks about it is really uh, well. He's just a really clear writer too. And, and, I mean, it's in translation, and you know, like your translation, of that was a little bit different than mine. But it's no matter how it gets brought over from the French, it uh, it's he really gets the point keenly and and succinctly. You know, you and I talked about this during the week while we were reading, but Tocqueville really is an absolute insight generating machine. I mean, on every page. It, it is written clearly, at least the translation is clear, clear, and his insights are pretty amazing. I mean, it's kind of like he captures, you know, modern day psychology and sociology as well as political science, you know, all, all wrapped into one. And, you know, every page I'm like, good grief. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see all these, and, and, you know, no wonder he's, he's so deeply quoted, but. And one of the things he talks about too, is something that we're still talking about today is, uh, he gets a lot into equality and what it does and how it developed here. And he, he just, he, as he travels through America, he sees a, a passion for equality just um, in a way that even in France, he didn't see. And it's also interesting is that it becomes like a, an article of faith to the people, you know, that we're, mm-hmm. that we're equal. And again, that that's the absence of the aristocracy helping us out because there's no, there's no Lord saying I'm better than you because of who my great, great grandfather was. There's, there's just people. And in, in America, I mean, in his time and ours, there's, there's rich and there's poor, but there's not that, that class, you know, I mean, if you get rich in America, you are, you can get yourself into that top social class. Yeah. He says specifically, you know, most wealthy people start from poverty. He says almost all those who now enjoy leisure were busy in their youth. In other words, he sees that these guys pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Even today, if West Forge today, that's, that's still true. I, I was, I just read some stuff the, the other day that, people are very much impressed with self-made men, you know, mm-hmm. guys who started in the mailroom or whatever, or started a company. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, those guys should be billionaires, you know, cause they earned it. And on, on the other hand, people who, you know, it's like you had all the right connections because you got to go to the right prep school and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. where, you know, folks have a lot of distaste, but it's kind of interesting that he, you know, he's, he sees Tocqueville sees that in the 1830s and here we are 2019 and, that general attitude, you know, still carries forward. Yeah, I think we don't we don't really hate wealth in this country the way 
that other people do. And I think even on the left, you don't see people who just hate wealth, except on the far left. Whereas maybe in a country where most of your wealth came from land and most of your land had been in families for a thousand years, you might hate wealth because you're never going to get it and they're just using it to lord over you. Here, I mean, I was thinking, was this still true that most rich men were poor in their youth? You look at our, our big, the big time billionaires you think about, Bezos, Zuckerberg, Gates, none of those guys grew up rich. So, I mean, there are certainly people who inherit wealth in this country that, because we have built up so much of it, that's inevitable. But the big time billionaires that you think about, when you think about who's rich in America, who's a, who's at the top of that Forbes list, almost all of them got there by, by doing something that nobody else was mm -hmm. doing, like, like Facebook. That's I mean, right. Facebook is, I mean, that's not a perfect system, but boy, it's something people wanted and they were willing to pay for, or advertisers were willing to pay for it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or Amazon, you know, I mean, that's something that we pretty much all use now. So I think this is, I mean, it's probably more true in Europe than it was in the Tocqueville state too, since a lot of the great estates and, and noble holdings have been broken up through revolution and taxes. So in that way, they're kind of catching up to us. But that notion, I think, makes the idea of wealth different in America. and makes us less susceptible to some of those socialistic trends that you see elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of us are not ever going to get you know, Bezos money, but you can look around and say, you know, a man can succeed here. A woman can succeed here. You know, it's, to hate success is kind of to hate your own potential. And I think that's, that's an area where the left just kind of sees it wrong mm -hmm. that to your point, like there's not this jealousy for other, other people's wealth. It's just kind of more like we want to make sure that we all have a, an equal chance at it. And, and actually for Tocqueville, when we're talking equality, that's kind of his starting point is inequality of opportunity, you know, the ability of any individual to have kind of an equal opportunity at achieving success or upward mobility in society. He says through hard work and good character, any person had a chance at living a comfortable life relative to a common person in Europe. That, that was a, a new creation in the history of the world is it's not just who are you born to, who's your daddy, but Hey, look, if you work hard, if you hustle, if you go out and cut down trees and clear the land in Western Pennsylvania, well, you know, you can build your own farm. And, you know, Americans, he says, are not limited by title, social class, or aristocratic order. These are actual conservative values. Yeah. And when he's talking equality, at first I'm thinking, oh, here we go. And that this is going to be good because <laughs> he's, he's going to criticize the pathologies of equality. And he, he actually does. He sees, he see, and let's talk about this in like one second, but he, he sees the negative path that, that uh, excessive equality can take. But as a starting point, he, he takes equality as, you know, we all have an equal chance at the starting line in America. Americans are able to ha you know, have, a, have an equality of political power. Everybody gets a, a vote. Of course, that wasn't quite right mm -hmm. you know, then, but he's talking about American men. Actually, speaking of Electoral rights. I mean, sorry to like jump around here, but but he sees in terms of suffrage, he says the further the limits of electoral rights are pushed back, the more we feel the need to push them back. And the ambition of those left below the level of qualification is frustrated in proportion to the number of those above it. In, in other words, like he saw, OK, only only white American men could vote and had, you know, political power in America in the 1830s. And he's like, well, that's not where it's going to end because the further you push electoral rights, the more people are going to want to get involved. And of course that's exactly what happened with 
first black men and white women. And yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes sense. Cause he, I mean, I guess if you lived under a system where no one could vote, you, you wouldn't maybe think, well, we should all vote, you know, because no one's voting. Yeah. But when you see a good portion of the population having the right to govern themselves, it's natural for the other parts of that population to say, wait a minute, why, why them and not us? You know? So yeah, he's right. Equality just, once you, once you crack the door open, it's going to spread. Mm-hmm. And he sees equality as, as not an end in itself, I don't think, but as a, as a means of getting to being a free people and sort of like we get to freedom through equality. And he writes about how we can't be fully equal until we're all equally free, which I think is also sort of a, another gesture at the slave system. He says also that, you know, it can't be the highest goal because he, if all you want is equality, he said, you know, people who want equality and freedom, if they cannot have that, they still want equality and slavery. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's sort of nods at socialism too, is the idea that, well, we're going to bring everybody down and everyone's going to serve the state and we're all going to be equal. And it's like, yeah, it's equal, but it's not good equal. It's not, it's not equality in, in freedom or in liberty. It's equality in, you know, subservience, which is, you know, basically just making everyone into serfs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an important distinction because I, I think maybe he's pulling on some of the threads of the French Revolution too, where you know, liberty, fraternity, and equality were their three you know, cardinal virtues. He's saying, I think that liberty has to be higher than equality, and equality is more like a means to get to that liberty. And he, and he obviously spends a lot of time analyzing the balance between equality and freedom. And, and freedom for, for, for him is sort of the Lockean freedom, is freedom from coercion, you know, freedom from the authority of others and, you know, elevating the individual. So political freedom is guarantee of individual rights, it's institutional protections for minority rights and so forth. You contrast that with the tyranny of the majority, but in analyzing what he sees is that a, a balance, a push and a pull between freedom and equality, you know, excessive freedom, he says, will, you know, can lead to damage. It can damage peace and property and people's lives while excessive equality can weaken individual rights. He says a thirst for equality leads to equalization of power, property, and status among citizens at the expense of freedom, the expense of individual rights. So he's, he analyzes this balance between we can't go too far on equality because it'll, it will harm our freedoms, but we can't go too far on freedom because then that starts to damage the society too and, and hurts the equality. So I thought that was a really interesting balance and not necessarily the way that I had ever thought about it before, but obviously we know excessive equality and a thirst for more equalization of power leads to collectivism and Hayek, you know, last week we went through all this and makes a very persuasive case for it, uh, leads to collectivism and a, a diminution of, of freedom. But then on the other hand, if we're going too far in the, in the realm of freedom, then, you know, we're, it's almost like, you know, the logical extent of, uh, you know, excessive freedom is sort of libertarian. All of a sudden you're back in the state of nature where mm-hmm. you know, people are atomized, like just bumping into each other. So anyway, I, I really thought that, that was very insightful, that, that kind of dichotomy that he set up. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And especially after all that time he spends talking about the downfalls of aristocracy, then he says, well, you know, in aristocracy, at least everybody was united in the community from top to bottom and you didn't really get to move your place, but there was a chain of responsibilities that went from the king to the peasant and everyone in between. He said individualism breaks that chain and frees each link, which is true. And that's what you're going for. The idea that you shouldn't be from birth subservient to another person. 
but it also it atomizes like you say it, it scatters us and in individualism we're i think tocqueville puts it that we're sort of like free to withdraw into our friends and family which again that sounds good at first but when you do that to excess then there's really community itself kind of degrades mm-hmm. and there's not there's not that interaction that that sort of there's it, it degrades society i think that that's kind of what weaver was talking about back in episode three i think he was and i think he was more pro-aristocratic than tocqueville is but as i remember it he, he, he was against that sort of atomization also mm-hmm. i think tocqueville's saying that individualism is better than you know the being stuck in the aristocratic system but there are flaws and he starts to think about how to address those flaws in the chapters that follow. Right. And his, his evaluation, I think of his, well, his comparison between aristocratic societies and the more individualistic society in America. It reminds me of our Edmund Burke reading, you know, cause you know, you just mentioned the aristocracy creates a long chain of citizens and democracy breaks it down. You know, individualism breaks it down. And I think, you know, Burke would say that's a bad thing and the society and the tradition these are valuable aspects of of a functioning healthy society and we need to we need to keep that i think tocqueville seeing that and saying yes that is a, that is an upside of aristocracy on the other hand individualism sure is great because <laughs> you know it's it's giving people all this this freedom and it's creating opportunities for them to participate in the political process and and to be active and to work together you don't necessarily see that as much in the aristocracy so it's kind of like in his evaluation that he's sending back to France, I mean, in democracy in America, he's kind of saying, okay, well, this is what democracy looks like. And, you know, here's some of the, here's some of the strengths and pitfalls. And this is the tug and pull, even within conservatism that I find fascinating. And, and I'm glad that we're identifying is, you know, that the traditional side of us is sort of like, yeah, tradition is good and we need to preserve what's good from, from the past and learn from uh, past generations and not necessarily dismiss it out of hand. On the other hand, you have the Milton Friedmans who are like, let's just go 100% pure individual. There's upsides to that too, but you know, it's kind of like this this balancing act and pre- preserving what was good from the past while also elevating the individual and making sure that there's uh, as much freedom, you know, as li- much liberty as possible for the individual. That's kind of the tension I think that we we're seeing in conservative thought. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the way Tocqueville starts to square that circle is through democracy itself and how a democratic society can be full of individualist parts and in, in individual individual individualist individuals. But because we have to elect a government and form political coalitions, first in the legislature, and then that kind of just trickles down to the, the electors themselves having to say, well, this side or that side, or, you know, we have to we don't always agree with on these issues, but we need to get together because we're really opposed to those issues. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we developed this party system and it in Tocqueville's mind, I think it, that it, that creates the habit of, of association of joining groups together to better society in some way. Like he says, Liberty engenders particular hatreds, but despotism is responsible for general indifference. So by having this democratic system where we're drawing out all the individuals in society, because when there's a flaw, it's up to us to fix it. When there's mm-hmm, yeah. when there's a problem, we can't just say, yeah, well, that's not my thing. That's the king's job. You know, that's that's the government's job. I'm not part of the government. You know, anyone who wants to, who sees himself as a community leader or whose his community might see him as a leader, even if he doesn't, 
he's going to get that responsibility thrust on him because that's that's how a free people is governed. And that need to govern ourselves brings out the individual back into the community and sort of reunites us on a voluntary basis. Just kind of, I, I thought that was kind of a beautiful way of putting it. Is that, 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 and, then, and then he has that, that habit of free association for political purposes also, you know, kind of makes us into an associating people. So then, you know, when something else comes up, it's not even really political. We might get together a group to, to fix that, you know, and, and I think that also you still see today is people say, well, let's, let's get together and, you know, clean up this park or let's get together and, and help the, these folks who a, a tragedy has befallen. So I think that um, that that's sort of democracy and individualism hand in hand kind of better each other in Tocqueville's telling. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I just thought those observations were just brilliant in terms of associations. He's, he just saw something that was completely different. Like you said, drawing people out and getting them, giving them involved. And he says, Americans constantly unite together in a thousand kinds of associations, large and small. And you really get the sense that, you know, his eyes are big as he observes this saying like, man, I've never seen anything like this before. Americans, he says, Americans group together to found seminaries, build inns, construct churches, distribute books, dispatch missionaries, establish hospitals, build prisons, build schools. And this is something you and I have talked about in, during our Nisbet episode in particular is that we're losing some of that, but the history of America, people got together to do together. You know, they, the barn needed to be built. You know, the whole neighborhood got together. If school needed to be built, you know, everyone from several miles around came and helped and hospitals were constructed and founded and operated by associations of just local people trying to decide like, Hey, there isn't some big brother who we need to turn to. Milton Friedman would say there's some quasi deity, which is the federal government that we need to turn to. And in uh, obeisant prayer, like, can, can we please No, Like people are like, Hey, this needs to be done. So let's get together and do it. He says, if Americans wish to highlight a truth or develop an opinion, they form an association where in France you see the government and in England, a noble lord at the head of a great new initiative in the United States, you find an association, like people doing it. It's not uh, some you know, higher level of adult like we need to you know, turn and ask. Something needs to be done. People stand up and do it. He finds such value in this that he basically makes this prescient prediction of the future. He says, some claim that as citizens become weaker, government must be more active have we heard that argument before? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what political power could ever substitute for the countless small enterprises which American citizens carry out daily with the help of associations? You know, he's, he, makes, he gives us this warning. In more complex society, the tasks of government will constantly extend its scope. But here's his warning. The more government replaces associations the more individuals will need government to help them as they lose the idea of associations. This is an endless, vicious cycle of cause and effect. This is exactly what you and I had talked about. And he, he made this prediction like 150 years beforehand that, you know, the, the more government gets involved and crowds out, you know, what people used to do together, the, the more people start to forget, like what it even means to gather together and, and clean the community yourself. Like, Oh, why, why would I do that? That's, you know, public works, we, we pay someone and give them a big fat pension to, to go ahead and do that. Why, why, why would we do that ourselves? And people forget uh, kind of the, the art of working together and, and, and associating. Yeah. I, and I think that forgetting, I think is what I thought of too, is that people by our time, 
think there are certain things people can't do for themselves. And you, and you hear, well, if government didn't do it, it would not get done. There's right. no way. And, you know, to look at American history, you say it did get done. You know, I mean, the old roads in America were built by people. They weren't built by government. And it wasn't terribly efficient, but it, you know, if the oldest road in your town is probably not laid out by the Department of Public Works, <laughs> you know, and the, the oldest school founded in your town might not be around anymore, but it was founded by just folks who had a bunch of kids and said, well, somebody's got to teach them. So let's, let's build up this building. Let's hire some teachers, you know, and, mm-hmm. and those things eventually became government functions, but they didn't start as government functions. And that kind of goes to Tocqueville's point about the township coming before the county, before the state, before the, the, the federal things got, things got built by the ground up because no one else was doing them, but they still got done. And I, I th- there's a lot of, there's this idea that the government has to do these things all the time because I think people don't believe in themselves and they don't, they don't believe that the community can just do anything on its own initiative. And yet knowledge of our history shows it, it, it happened all the time and it still happens in some places. You know, things still, people do still get together and not just to manipulate government, but to sometimes, you know, I mean, people get together to lobby and to yell at various zoning hearings and things, but people also get together and just do things. Mm-hmm. build things up in, in what voluntary associations do still remain. You can see why Tocqueville's impressed with it because it is impressive. It's, it's, it's not, it's not organized. It just organizes itself in a, in a way that Hayek talked about too. It's, you know, it's to a, to a big thinker, to somebody with a lot of ideas and say, well, we need a system. We you know we've got to have some sort of, you know, rules for how these things go. And Tocqueville, and I think Hayek too, would say, you know, people figure it out themselves and it, it works. Mm-hmm. Out pretty, it works out pretty well. Yeah. And, and you and I could agree in twenty in two thousand nineteen that you know there's some efficiencies in having having the government lay pavement for the yes. roads. You know, yeah, you, I, you I, and I don't want to spend our days like building roads, right? But but to Tocqueville's point, like you know, the tasks of government will constantly extend its scope. So we're not just talking about basic things like you know, people could someone could be listening to this podcast and roll their eyes like, oh, Kyle's saying like we should build our own schools and hire our own teacher. That's just absurd. And okay, maybe there's some level of uh, of silliness to that. But and and you know, you and I don't want to be building schools and <laughs> no, I mean, trying to find teachers. But you know, like, but where's the limit? Is there is there a limiting principle here? And Tocqueville's like, there never will be a limiting principle once you start on that path. It's, the government will just constantly extend its scope and farther and farther and farther. And of course, he was exactly right. As you said, it's incredibly prescient. It, he, he is talking about things that we're talking about today. And, you know, the the trend is going a little farther down the road, but it's still the same trend. It's still the same problem. Of where does this stop? And it's, yeah, it's really fascinating to read somebody from almost two centuries ago saying the same things. So along with associations, he kind of gets into also, you know, what is needed for associations. And uh, he has a lot to say about the free press. Just the idea that you can't, you can't associate without having a means to disseminate information. And that, and he kind of ties together newspapers, which was, I guess, the pretty much the only free press in his day, with the idea of association is, you know, spreading the word, generating interest about an idea, you know, trying to persuade people. And it, it's the sort of thing that made me, you know, when you look at the first amendment, there's a lot of different rights in there that don't necessarily seem related to each other. You know, like mm-hmm. why is, why is free press, free speech, free religion, and, you know, free association all in one? Why aren't those separate 
you know, but they really are related. You can't, you can't associate without being able to speak freely and publish freely. And really you can't publish freely without getting together usually, unless it's just like Ben Franklin and his press and one guy running the whole thing. So I thought that was, that was an interesting kind of side jaunt into what, what makes associations possible. Yeah. He goes, he goes on at length about the value of a free press. And what really stood out to me too, is he didn't, you know, expound on the great virtue of, of a, an objective press and so forth. In other words, like the conversation mm-hmm. about free press was just not the same as it is today. Today it's, it's more about, you know, you're attacking the integrity, you know, the integrity of the free press. And I think, you know, this is a different conversation for you and I, but I- I'm skeptical that, you know, the press is entirely objective at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, there, there are certainly elements that are trying their best, but that's not what he points to as the, as the great virtues of the press. Basically he's, he says, you know, the press is a, vehicle to help people to associate with one another, to connect with one another, to just spread information so that they can organize around it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, uh, I don't think there really was this idea of objectivity in the press in the 19th century. I don't think that really comes around until maybe, maybe after the second world war, maybe before it in some corners, but I think most people expected the, the press to have an idea. And it, it kind of makes sense. If you spend your life covering politics, how could you say, well, I don't really care how this turns out. No, you're, you're studying it every day. You're meeting these people, seeing what their, what their ideas are, what their personalities are. There's no, no way you couldn't be objective. And even if you can try to put away, put aside your views, you got, you got you're going to have those views and it's, it's almost inevitable. And yeah, I don't think that's a problem for Tocqueville because the same way that an association is a collection of people that have a certain objective. They have, they have an opinion about some issue and that's why they got together. So just like we mm-hmm. wouldn't expect these associations to be neutral in all things, you know, they're, they're advocates for some cause. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that way, but he, he's right. He never, he never mentions that at all. I, honestly, I don't think we should either. It's, it's sort of an impossible ideal. Yeah. And I mean, then it sets up like, you know, this assumption that, that one side is, is objective and the other side isn't. All right. Well, so we've gotten pretty far on Tocqueville. More to come. Let's stop here and continue the conversation next week. Hope you all join us then.